All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, we're going to go through chapter 8 and chapter 9 this morning. And um, we have all experienced competing worldviews before. We have, we have seen that, right? So we have seen, um, for example, let's just make it easy on us, not trying to start anything, but think about an Alabama-Auburn ball game. Um, you know, as people watch that game, if you are an Alabama fan, you're going to watch it one way and you're going to see certain things. And so if a official makes a call and it works out in favor of Alabama, well, absolutely, that was the right call. We don't question that, right? But if you're a fan of Auburn, that same call is the worst call you've ever seen in your life. And that referee can't see and he needs to borrow your glasses. And we see things differently. We're used to those competing worldviews. And so... When we look at the world, it's not just Alabama, Auburn sports, whatever. When we look at the world, we have worldviews. We have these competing views where we look at things through a certain lens and everything is affected by that lens. There have been a lot of worldviews that have come out and especially since like the 1800s, things that have kind of walked its way out onto the world stage and people have talked about things and they believe things because of their worldview. You take Charles Darwin, for example, well, the work that, that he did and, and the, the message that he got out with evolution, even if he didn't believe it at the end of his life, which a lot of people like to say that he didn't believe it, and even if science doesn't believe it the way that he presented it and originally, that concept is out there, okay? And so people, when they look at the world, sometimes they look at the world through the lens of evolution, you take Karl Marx, for example. Karl Marx was another ideologue, but also a, 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 a really, um, a, probably maybe mentally unhealthy, um, because when he presented the idea of communism, for him, the lens of the whole world was that the poor um, are always oppressed, and the wealthy are always oppressors. And so the only way to fix that is for the poor to rise up and take what the rich have. And if you read his whole theory on paper, it doesn't sound half bad. Everybody is middle class, nobody's poor, nobody's rich. If you hear that on paper, it sounds really good. We've actually had the opportunity to watch it play out in history multiple times. And what do you see? You see that everybody is impoverished except the very few, very powerful elite at the very top. And so when you look at it from that worldview, you can see all these different Things and, and so there's this thing that's been floating around for a while called critical theory or critical race theory. It's based on the ideas of Marx and it's the very same concept, but instead of money, it is race. Okay, so there is a difference between the races and there are certain races that have always been the oppressed and there are certain races that have always been, always been the oppressors. Well, the passage that we're going to view this morning, we're going to see no one his family get off the ark. And guess how many other families there are in the world alive when Noah and his family get off the ark? None, okay? So when we think about races and people say it's always been this way, it has not always been this way. So that's one thing that from taking a biblical worldview, we can begin to deal with. Is racism something that is baked into human society or is it something that, that we kind of perpetuate and keep going throughout the generations? Well, if we look, there was a time when you couldn't possibly be racist because there was one 
race. And so maybe it's not baked into who we are as humans, but rather it is kind of perpetuated in our society. When we look at things through a biblical worldview, you have to understand, no matter who you are, and no matter what the situation is, you're going to use some point of reference to interpret what you see. That's what a worldview is. You're going to use some idea of what you know or some kind of guide to help you understand what you're seeing right in front of you. It, 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 if you're at work, it may be your training. You may use your training to interpret what you see. If, if you are, you know, if, if, you, if you are a fan of a, of a team, you're going to use your loyalty to that team to see things that particular way. If you are a Christian, we should always use the Bible to help us understand what we're seeing. It is our point of reference. It is our guide. Um, Eli Gold is, is my favorite announcer for Alabama, and sometimes he will say, with my crimson-colored glasses, I see dot, 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 whatever he says he sees. Well, we need to be sure that we have our Bible-colored glasses when we start looking at the world, especially the things around the flood and the very, very early things where science says one thing and, and, and you know, archaeologists and geologists and all these other kind of more or less the theoretical type things when we have what the Word actually says. So we definitely need to look at that. But also when we look at social things. And so as we finish our examination this morning of the Old Testament account of the flood, we are going to see some social things. We've looked at a lot of biblical answers to what I believe are scientific questions, but as we kind of finish this up, we're going to be looking more at how the flood speaks socially. Not the flood itself, but the things that happen around the flood. What does this teach us about society, and how does the Bible lead us to believe and respond to society in the way that things simply are? So, what we uh, are going to look at is that God did not leave Noah and his family and those animals floating in the ark um, forever. Uh, and he is not going to leave us floating around in society with no guide for how to understand and, and figure out what's going on in this world. The love and faithfulness of God has overwhelmed the sinfulness of those who trust him. And so, yes, if you're keeping you know, count at home. I just called all of us sinful. But I also said that the love and faithfulness of God overwhelms that in us. And so while we are sinful, God is always going to be reaching out. He is always going to be faithful. He is always going to be loving. And if we follow Him, He will give us the wisdom. He will give us the guidance. He will help us understand the world in the way that we should understand it. So now I want to read this to you. Um, Genesis 7, or, or no, I'm sorry, 8 and 9 uh, kind of fits together as one unit. And so we'll read this. There's, there's uh, some flood stuff. There's some really weird stuff. And so we'll get into all of it as we go. All right, so verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month of the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Arat. 
And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark and, uh, that he had made and sent forth a raven. <coughs> it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him uh, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her in, uh, brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again sent forth the dove out uh, of the of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the, the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In the, 600, uh, in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning for from every beast I will require it and from man from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image and you be fruitful and multiply greatly or increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offsprings after you, 
and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds on the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three uh, were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Okay, so going all the way back to the beginning, we're going to start by looking at the flood waters when they recede, when they subside. Now, there is science in this. There's, there's a lot of science in this, and I'm not going to look at the science today because I've kind of covered that and talked about what the floodwaters could have done, the receding floodwaters, what that could have done to the world, and how it could have left marks on the world that looked like they were millions of years old, when in reality they were just the result of a, of a lot of water over a short period of time. So after watching kind of the, the, the destructive nature of the flood, Noah and his passengers may have been wondering how God was going to rescue them. How was God going to go about bringing into the flood and allowing them to go on to dry land? Because in, in reality, nothing like this had ever happened. Noah may not have known how God would deal with all that water and what did God do with all that water. We know that the earth can only absorb so much and then it begins to stand and it begins to hold up. But God managed to bring about the end of all that water. 
<clears throat> it is surprising to a lot of readers when, when you read at the beginning, it says, but God remembered Noah. Like, did he forget? What else was he doing? There were only, you know, six or eight people in the world. Who was he paying attention to if not them? But he didn't forget them in a sense of he forgot that they existed. Um, what it means is that he remembers them, and that means that he takes action. So we see this in other parts of the, the Bible. Like later in Genesis, it says that God remembered Lot. Uh, which means that, that he saved Lot from Sodom. It says that he remembered Rachel and he gave her children. He didn't forget Lot. He didn't forget Rachel. It was just that at that moment, he took action. And, and that's what that means um, in the Old Testament, specifically when it says that God remembered something, is that he took action. So the action that he took was to cause a wind to go over the surface of the waters. Now, we know that that would have helped with... Um, uh, that word was in my head right before then. Y'all know what it means when water dries up. Evaporation, it would have helped with evaporation. Cut that part out of the recording. Um, and, and, and this would have been able to kind of begin to dry that water up and begin the process. And so, so God began to do that. Now, the waters had done their worst and God had, was now ready to intervene and reestablish life on the earth. So the ark comes to rest, on, it's, the Bible says, on the mountains of Arat. Um, it is going to be impossible for us to say where that is. Um, there's actually studies. So there is a Mount Arat in Turkey now. There have been reports, people have said, well, well they found the ark and they've, they've, they've shown satellite photos and things along those lines. But here's the problem. The Mount Arat, the way that we know it, and even that mountain range in general, was formed by a vo volcanic eruption that would have certainly occurred after the flood. So if the ark was sitting on those mountains, which would have been mere foothills at the time, it would have been covered in hundreds, not hundreds of feet, but, but feet and feet and feet of volcanic uh, lava and then ash and things like that. So it's, it's really unlikely that we're going to find the ark. It'd be cool. It'd be the best discovery in all of archaeology and all of history. But even if we don't find it, you know, a lot of people think that if we found the ark, um, all the people would start believing because then there's, there's indisputable proof that the early, early chapters of Genesis are absolutely true. But I do want to remind you what Jesus or what Abraham said to the rich man when he was burning away in, in hell. He said, your brothers, they're not going to listen to a visitor from the dead because they didn't listen to the law and the prophets. And so even if there was indisputable proof that the Bible was true, which I believe already exists, so if they found the Ark of Noah, or if they found the Ark of the Covenant, or if they found whatever else, you name it, biblical relic, if they found those things, I don't believe it increases the faith in this world. I don't believe that it makes people believe more. Because what is faith but the evidence of things unseen? Even when they see it, they're not going to believe it. And it comes down to not just belief, but attitude. And the attitude is an attitude of ignoring God, just like what we talked about. They were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying, they were giving to marriage. Not necessarily unrighteous in itself, but they're doing that in a way that they ignore God. So the attitude of the world is to ignore God, but also the attitude is to reject God, anything but God. So if you look at religious tolerance in America, just as an example, there is a great religious tolerance in America for anything except Jesus. You can have any religion you want to. You can explain it any way you want to. And if you take Jesus and you make it weird enough, then you can have that too. But if you stick to what the Word of God says about God and say, that's my relationship, that is my religion, and that is my belief, the world will say no. They will reject that. Because that is a problem. Because that is the truth. 
Okay, so as we go into this, I don't believe that um, you, you, they, have, they have found the ark. There were some claims back in the early 2000s, but I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. But what I do believe um, is that the story actually happened. What God said happened actually did happen. So whether they ever find the ark or not, we already believe it. My thought is if you didn't believe it before, you're not going to believe it after. So, when after 40 days of, of the ceasing of the rain and the winds on the surface of the earth, that's when the ark came to rest uh, on, on the, the, the Mount um, uh, Arat or the mountains of Arat. Um, and so, Noah sent out a raven, um, and the raven eventually didn't return. Uh, but when he sent out the dove, the dove kept coming back even after it found an olive leaf. And so why is that? Well, ravens are scavenger animals. That's what they are. They scavenge. And so they would have found things to scavenge long before, like doves dwell in valleys. And so they would have found things to scavenge anywhere, and they would have been fine. But the doves are valley-dwelling sort of birds, and so they, they would have needed more vegetation to be able to inhabit that area. So he sent out the dove three times at intervals of seven days, and finally, the dove doesn't come back. When the dove doesn't come back, Noah knew that there was dry land and there was vegetation. So because the waters are receding doesn't necessarily mean the land is habitable. And so as you listen to the reading of this passage, you may think, well, if it's dry land, why don't they get out? Well, just because the water is gone doesn't mean that it's habitable, doesn't mean that there's vegetation. You know, it could have been muddy and mucky. You're talking about a whole lot of sediment that's been moved around. It would have not necessarily been a place that you got out and just, we can live now because it was covered with water for so long. Ultimately, somewhere close to a year, water was actually prevailing over the earth. And so it definitely was not immediately, just because the water's dried up doesn't mean that it's immediately, or just because you can see the ground doesn't mean that it's immediately a place where you can actually inhabit the place. So, so there was a final period of 57 days that passed before the earth was dry enough for them to actually disembark from the ark poet and didn't know it. Uh, so the flood lasted 371 days total. So that was from the day that God closed the door to the day that, that, that they opened the door and came back out. It lasted 371 days. It's a little over a year. Um, it would have been more than a year for Noah and them because they went by a lunar calendar, but for us we understand uh, we go by a heliocentric calendar. So anyway, so thus the flood lasted the 371 days. Uh, we can be sure that no one, his passengers, would have likely uh, would have liked for the flood waters to recede much more quickly than they did. Right? Don't don't we think that um, it was probably interesting when it first started raining? Uh, just imagine the moment that the ark lifted up and you knew you were floating. That would be very interesting or terrifying, whichever way you prefer to put it. Uh, but as things went and it stopped raining and you're just floating, because I don't know that there would have been a whole lot of current in that water until the winds came, that would have gotten old pretty quick. You know, that, that would have been something you were ready, okay, God, we, we, we had fun, we did what we did, can we go home now? Can we be done with this? I'm sure that they were ready to get out of that ark a long time before, before they did. And we have to realize that some of the experiences that we have in life they won't be over as soon as we want them to be over. Think about COVID. Who in here is ready for this whole COVID thing to just be over? Well, I know I am. 
I'm ready, ready for it to be over. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for us not to have to talk about it anymore. I'm ready for it not to be something where we're just waiting for the next variant or the next bad news or the next you know, terrible thing to happen. We're ready for it to be over. And in God's timing, it will be over. But we have to be patient until that time comes along. And so just as Noah and his family had to be patient until God gave them permission to leave the ark, we have to be patient for a lot of things in our lives as well. But I do want to look at this promise. God makes a promise, and this is a very, very interesting promise, and it's going to get us into some of the social details that I wanted to talk about. So, um, when the ground was dry, Noah led the animals out of the ark, and immediately they built an altar and sacrificed clean animals um, and birds to the Lord. So, Noah's first act shows faith and gratitude um, to the God that brought him out of the flood. There's... Just from a pragmatic standpoint, if you've got all the animals that are in the world and you have spent the last year saving those animals and the first thing you do is come out and kill a bunch of them, it, that, that takes a lot of faith. That takes a whole lot of faith. Just imagine, I mean, over that period of time, how many of you have a pet that you said you didn't want? When it showed up or when you had it, I don't want this dog, I don't want this cat, I don't want anything to do with it, they grow on you. And, and over the course of a year, what do you think they did for a year? They, I mean, you can only talk to, to six or seven people so long before you would much prefer the company of animals. And so they probably went down there and they spent the time with the animals and they probably had some kind of relationship with those animals. It seems like maybe there wasn't fear and dread from animals to humans the way that, that it is after because God includes that in his, in his, his covenant and in, in his promise. And so they may have really liked those animals and then immediately you have to sacrifice them. Um, and you might say, well, if, if we knew we were going to sacrifice them, we wouldn't have built a relationship with them. But think to the process of the Passover. Think about that lamb and how they bring the lamb into the house uh, leading up to the time of the Passover when they make the sacrifice. And, and, and the reason is so that it is truly a sacrifice. You know, if, if, if daddy has a bunch of lambs, that's one thing. But if daddy has a bunch of lambs and he brings one in the house and you know that lamb and you name that lamb and you play with that lamb and then they have to sacrifice that lamb, that is a whole different situation. So even the children recognize the sacrifice and recognize that a price has to be paid. And so, so that was one of the things that, that, that really sticks out to me is what they chose to do right out of the way. Um, and this pleased God. It, it satisfied him in his heart. That's what the language says, <coughs> is that it actually satisfies him in his heart. And so he begins to speak, not specifically to Noah. It doesn't necessarily say that it's addressed to Noah, although who else would be listening at this point? Um, but either way, from this point forward, um, he would not, God would not give man what he actually deserved for his sins. Um, he would ensure that there was a regular and predictable uh, seasons, except in Alabama. He, he, would, he would ensure that those things were, were something that mankind could bank on. When do you plant? How do you prepare for your harvest and things like that? Because if you didn't know these things and know, hey, it's going to warm up come summer. It's always going to warm up so you know when you can plant in those days, you would starve to death in one year. In less than one year, you would starve to death. So it's something that was very important for God to provide that. What God determined is that mankind is evil from his youth. 
He is evil and that's not going to change at any point, no matter how much punishment, no matter how much judgment he pours out on them. So there is definitely coming a day of judgment. God's not ignoring that, but he will not judge the whole world again in this manner. That's what he says. So the flood came because mankind was so wicked. Um, but uh, the, the, the very fact that, um, or, but even because of that, God promised never to smite the whole world again, never to destroy the whole world again. In that manner, he did that because mankind's still going to be sinful. Um, and, and we'll get into that in just a minute. So um, everything about mankind was bad. So when we look at um, the, uh, the, the, the comparison to other religions that are there during that time, just to kind of point this out, um, the Baal religions, not obviously right at that time, but in the time of, of the Jews when they would have been reading this, the Baal religions believed that you had to do things in order to start spring and to start the harvest. And you, there, were, there, was, there was worship things that you had to do to make these things happen. And so they believed that the seasons depended on their obedience and adherence to God. But what God is saying is despite the disobedience, despite the inadherence to His law, those seasons will still happen. Things, you know, the sun will still come up in the morning. Summer will still come. Winter will still come. Everything will continue to be predictable. Now, God made this covenant with Noah, and He laid out the principles for human conduct on the planet. And there, are, there are four items in this in this covenant. First of all, God ordered them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Um, now, when He says fill the earth. So, you know, probably you know that we're coming up on the story of the Tower of Babel where all mankind was in this one place and they built this tower. So, fill the earth also gives the idea that they were supposed to spread. They were not all supposed to gather and congregate in one place. God is going to fix that. He's going to make sure that that is a division that needs to happen. But when mankind came together the way that they did, they immediately proceeded to do something very sinful. And God said, look what they're doing now. How much more is going to go in the future as they continue to gather in this manner? So what we see, first of all, is that they were supposed to refill the earth and they were supposed to spread out over the earth. So that was an important thing. Um, if you look at, the, the, again, the, the local religions, um, the, the Babylonians, they actually, their religions indicated population control, not population expansion. Uh, but if you look at the Hebrews, like throughout history, you look at the Hebrews, they are very focused on expanding, on multiplying. Their communities always have grown. Think about the, 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 the Hebrews that were in Egypt. That was the big threat, was that their population was growing tremendously, tremendously over that period of time. Second, God established man's dominion over all animal life. There was fear and dread that were put in animals toward mankind. That's why hunting is not necessarily easy. You don't just go out there and... Come here, you know, and, and then and then you have to go hunting for it because it's afraid of you, and you have to go and you search it out. That is that is something that, that God did. So mankind, whatever animals might have been domesticated before, I believe that that process had to start over. Um, and so the animals that were out in the wild, they would have feared and had dread over humankind. So there was that animosity there during that time, and and, and God put man in charge over animals. So he put that, that, their life and death in the hands of mankind. God also, this is number three, God approved the eating of animal meat by humans. This was when God allowed mankind to become 
meat eaters. We, could, we can now eat both meat and vegetables. That was when he gave that command and when he allowed that to happen. Um, maybe they didn't have meat in their diet for a year or two while they're waiting on things to repopulate, but that was when things opened up. But God did make things very specific. In the Old Testament, the view was the blood is the life. And so you could not, you could not eat food that still had its blood in it. Um, this does not mean that it is sinful to have a rare steak. That, that, that's not what this is about. But it was not good to eat meat while the blood was still in it. We're talking about virtually eating it alive. Um, I don't know if y'all have, have ever seen any you know, of the concerts I've heard. I've not actually watched any of these, but some of the rock concerts, some of the weird ones way back, performers would eat some kind of animal alive or bite it at least. None of that is what God wants. And so that's where you're talking about some of the weird stuff. That's the kind of stuff. You're not talking about a rare steak. You're not talking about you know, not quite done. That's a whole different conversation there. But also they could not eat animals that they had not killed. So if it died of natural causes, you couldn't eat that. Would you now go and get a cow that died of natural causes and slaughter it and eat it? No, why? Because the Bible says so or because you know that it would be disease-ridden? Right? And, and so there were things, and, and I find this in, in, in God's laws, and I think it's a beautiful thing, God built things into His law to protect His people before they learned some of the reasons why. And so there's a lot of things that now we know. There are certain animals that you have to have all the way done. There's certain kinds of animals you just don't eat. God built those things into His law so that the people, when they finally caught up to God, they would know, oh, okay, God actually was, was protecting us all along by providing us with this law. But number four, and this is, this is important, God also forbid murder. At this point, you have to remember, there is not a Ten Commandments. You know, we get all after Abraham for lying, but there wasn't a commandment that said don't lie at this particular point. But there already was a commandment against murder. Now, you could argue that all the way back to Cain and Abel, it was known, it was a given that murder was wrong because Cain hid his brother Abel. So we, we do know that, but what we also understand is that at this point, God forbids it, and God puts on the table capital punishment. God says that if a man kills a man, his life is forfeit. Men will kill him. You know, a lot of people say that capital punishment devalues human life, that it, that it makes a human life worthless or at least worth less than if we respect that human life. But what God is saying is that murder is actually a sin against His image in mankind. So killing a man is like killing God in effigy. That, that's more like what God is saying there. And so when a person takes the life of another person, that is such a grievous sin against both man and God that his life is forfeit, therefore capital punishment. That is the biblical understanding and basis for capital punishment. Now, when we look at that, I know people have some problems with, well, what about if an innocent man and those kinds of things? Well, you know, God didn't get all down to the specifics of, of, of court cases and evidence and DNA evidence and all those kinds of things. But if you take the life of a person, you are assaulting the image of God. And the punishment is death. That's biblical and that's simple. And so in our, in our social circles, people want to talk about, well, should Christians really believe in capital punishment? I mean, our Savior was killed, so maybe, maybe we should shy away from that. Well, no, because as we read in God's Word, 
we already have an understanding of why there should be capital punishment. So it, it makes it clear. So in this covenant, God promises never to destroy the water with a flood, uh, to destroy the earth with a flood again. And so he leaves a symbol, says that I'm going to put my bow in the sky. And so when a hunter is finished with a hunt, he, he unstrings his bow and he hangs it in the tent or hangs it in his house. And that's exactly the image that God is, is presenting here. The Hebrews thought that lightning bolts were actually arrows from God. And so that bow, they would have seen that rainbow as we think of it today as an actual symbol of God the warrior. And so God hung it in the sky declaring, I will not destroy the world by flood ever again. And so it is a is the picture of this warrior hanging up his bow. I will never fight against man in that way again. And so this sign is a benefit for God, um, not really for man, to eliminate even the possibility of forgiveness. So people might say, well, you know, rainbows appear because of the way that, the, that light reflects through water and things like that. So did that science not work beforehand? I wasn't there, and I don't know anybody else that was, um, so I can't tell you that, but what I do know is what the Bible said. This is where I'm telling you those crimson-colored glasses or those Bible-colored glasses, does the fact that science explain it differently invalidate what the Bible says? No, it doesn't. Who are you going to let be right? Scientists that change their mind all the time? Or God, who has never changed? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's take God's word for it. He put his bow in the sky after the flood. And so that's what we will take and that's what we will understand. So, another social issue. The population of the whole earth came from Noah, his sons, and their wives. There is no excuse for racism. People have said that racism is almost at a genetic level. You know, when you were going to school, probably there were questions on tests and there were other things that said critical thinking. Those were the bad ones. Those were not, those were not you couldn't write A, B, or C. It wasn't a fill-in-the-blank. There wasn't a word bank. There, there wasn't true-false. It was you had to write down some things that you would, you would, you would thunk up. And as a teacher, the mind of a child is a terrifying thing. I usually tell them what to write on my, my critical thinking pages because I don't want to know what they think. But... You had critical thinking. Well, critical, when we think about critical nowadays, that goes hand in hand with race. And, and, and the point that's being made, and why are parents so angry? Why are they going to school boards and shouting and things like that? The point is, that is being made is that some people are genetically racist. That would put it on God's account that we were racist. That's a whole different conversation than your mom and daddy taught you to hate certain people. That's a whole different conversation. I believe, and, and I believe this because of what I read in Scripture, racism is socially taught. Racism is socially perpetuated. I do not believe that it's baked into the genetic makings and underpinnings of who we are. I also believe that racism is a lie from the devil. When we look at this point right here, Noah and his family represent all of the human kingdom. They are everything. They are red and yellow, black and white, precious in his sight. They are all of those things in one. And so when we think about that, we have to realize that there is no fundamental difference between us and any other race. There are differences between our culture and other cultures. And we might say, well, we believe in this and they believe in that. And we have to respect people's differences and we have to proclaim the gospel in the midst of those differences. But that is not racism. 
And so we have to be smart about this. And again, instead of having Marxist colored glasses or, or, or critical race colored glasses, let's have biblical colored glasses. We do not need an extra analytical tool to understand what God has already told us. He made all of us in His image. He made all of us to be mag our glorifiers, reflectors of who He is. And so when we look at the rest of the world and they look different, they have different color skin, they have different color eyes and different colored hair, and they talk with different sounding languages, that's just God's creative diversity. That is not different or wrong or, or, or awful in some other way. What we have and what we must share, the only way that we should seek to change people is through the gospel. If you meet a Christian of a different race or a Christian of a different uh, language or a Christian of, of, a, of a different look in some other way, celebrate with that person because you'll be doing that for all eternity with that person. But what people are telling us is that we were made in a certain way. We, were, we are evil, but we did that to ourselves. But in terms of different, we are not. We are not different. We are all created in the same way. Now, let me look at this last little bit here. Sin did not die. This whole story is, is, is weird to me. You know, growing up in Sunday school, I got the story of Noah's Ark probably once every six months. We, 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 we got that story. You know, he had toys that went with it. So you got that story all the time, and you got to play with the little animals in the ark and all that kind of stuff. But my Sunday school teacher never told me about this other part, this part about Noah and the, the vineyard and all that stuff. I, I didn't get that story. Okay, so Noah gives us proof. Noah and his sons give us proof that the flood did not solve the sin problem. Humanity was still sinful. That's, that's what we find out. So Noah planted a vineyard. He became a, a man of the soil. In 350 years, he developed a, probably a pretty good vineyard. And in that time, at some point, he enjoyed the fruits of his labor. The Bible does not judge positively or negatively about Noah drinking um, or any of those other things, but it does say that it was shameful that he laid there naked. So you do with that whatever you want, but our focus is really on Ham uh, and, and what happened and then Noah's curse that he, he placed on Ham and the blessings that he placed on Shem and Japheth. So while he was passed out drunk, Ham came by, whatever, peeked in the tent, saw that Noah was naked. Now, you don't get it in the English, but in the original language, you see that, that he got some kind of pleasure. More like making fun of Noah is, is what he saw from that. So it, 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 it amused him, and he went and gossiped to his brothers. Dad, you know, Dad's laying in there passed out drunk and, and you know, doesn't have any clothes on. And so that, was, that would have been the way um, that that would have happened. And so what Shem and Japheth do... And when we say, well, they acted more mature, Ham was the, the youngest child, we need to remember that we're talking about a man at this particular point that's well over 600 years old, so his children should be mature enough not to be you know, schoolboy pranks and schoolboy jokes at this point. We don't know exactly how old they were, but we know they were probably old enough to know way better than this. So anyway, they put a garment on the backs of their shoulders, they back into the tent, cause it to fall, they never look at Noah, he's covered up when he wakes up, he knows what's happened. How does he know what happened? Did somebody tell him? Did God tell him? That's, that, even that is not part of the story. But Noah proceeds to curse Canaan. Now, the Bible tells us Canaan is the son of Ham. So instead of cursing Ham, he curses Canaan. But you should be familiar with the name Canaan, and it does mean what you think it means. It means the Canaanites. Canaan was the father of the Canaanites. 
And so Noah begins to curse him. And the curses that he makes on him is that you will always be a servant, a servant of a servant. You will, you will never be free, you will never rule on your own, those kinds of things. And so this curse is a very powerful curse. But I want you to understand why it came about. So how big of a deal do you think it is that Ham walked by, realized that his dad was just passed out drunk, and thought it was funny? It could possibly happen to a lot of people. But what we do know is that the Canaanites were specifically predisposed to all forms of sexual immorality, even in their worship, because, you know, they didn't worship God. Once we meet the Canaanites later in Scripture, they are, they are, they are idolaters and pagans, and, and, that, and they had a lot of sexual immorality in their culture. And so what we're seeing here is Noah sees this as a deviance. He sees this as a perversion, and because of that, he curses it. And even a little bit, Think about the words in Scripture in other places, a little leaven, leaven's whole lump. Even a little bit of that deviancy, a little bit of that perversion, it goes a long, long ways, and it, and it passes down through the generations. So what is he saying here? He's saying that Canaan and all of its descendants will suffer because of this. Not because of Ham's actions, but because of what's going to be passed down to them. This is going to continue to go right down the list of all the other children that he has. And so... In our modern world today, another social issue we'll mention right quick like is that we have found a way to justify, normalize, and in most cases celebrate every form of sexual perversion. There are a few things that we still disagree with, but there are pockets that are working to, to make any of those things acceptable. This is opposite to God's plan. God's plan is that human sexuality is marriage, period. That's his plan. Man and woman, one man, one woman, that is it for God. He did not open that up to discussion. He did not put that on there for debate and gender theories and all that kind of stuff that you have out there today. God defined those terms. He set the parameters and that's it. God didn't leave any open realm for people to come up with other ideas. You might be able to justify it now. You will not be able to justify it when you stand before God. And so we have to recognize that. So God made that very clear. Every other type of perversion that we have justified, it is still just as wrong, even though we might have justified it. So Canaan received this curse, but uh, Shem and Japheth actually receive a blessing. So Shem is going to follow the Lord. That's, that's the blessing that is given him. You're going to follow the Lord. And what we find out is that Shem is, he's the father of the Middle East. And out of the Middle East, obviously, you have Abraham and you have his descendants as well. So you have Israel. So Shem is going to have the Middle East and also he is the father of some of the North African nations. Japheth is everything else. And so Japheth's descendants are expanded and multiplied and filled the rest of the earth. Shem and, and his family. And so what it actually says is that, that Shem is going to follow the Lord. And, and Japheth is going to dwell in Shem's tent, meaning that Japheth's relationship with the Lord is dependent upon what happens in the tent of Shem. Now, when we think about that and we kind of move that out, so in the tent of Shem is Israel. Out of Israel comes Jesus Christ. And so out of Jesus Christ comes the gospel, and the gospel reaches the entire world, the world of Japheth. And so Japheth is blessed through Shem. He dwells in Shem's tent, so to speak, right? But in all of this, and I wrote down some history, I'm not going to read you, but in all of this, Canaan is the servant. In all of this, Canaan is against it, and he is the servant. And so I've got some things about Alexander and Rome, but we're not going to go into that. Um, but just know that what Noah said was right. Noah was correct in this, and so it does seem that it has come straight down from God. The last verse tells us that Noah lived 
um, 350 years after the flood, and then he died when he was 950 years old. So what have we learned from the flood? What are some things that we can walk away from, uh, and what are some things that we can actually do? So one thing, God takes sin very seriously, and he will always judge violations of his law. God is not pleased with sin, and he will not ignore it. Um, God is merciful and finds ways to deliver the people that are faithful to him. In the case of the flood, there was one family. Um, hopefully now in the case of us, there are multiple families, multiple churches, multiple believers all across the world, but that, those are the ones that he is going to find a way to deliver. God values the lives of those that love him, and he will never forget us. Even though Noah and his family were left on that ark for a year, he didn't forget them. He came back and, and he, he brought them to dry land. So what do we need to do? We live in a world that is dark, it is sinful, it is corrupt, and in every way that you can imagine, it is walking away from God, not towards Him. So we live in that world. A world like Noah. And I'm not saying we're in the last days. Um, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Every generation can claim that they're in the last days, and none of them, you, you couldn't prove any of them wrong. So we live in a world like the world of Noah, a world in which people ignore God, a world in which people joyfully violate the commands that God has given us. We live in a world that is turned away from God. But like Noah, we should be preachers of righteousness. Noah may have only been a preacher of righteousness in his actions and the fact that God told him to do something and he obediently did that thing. That may be all that Noah said, but he may have declared the word of the Lord more than that. We don't know. We don't have that recorded. But what we do know is that he was a preacher of righteousness. The Bible tells us that, that he acted on faith. What should we do? Well, we live in this dark world. And you might say to yourself, and you're probably right, even if I preach from now until the end of my days that Jesus is Christ and we ought to obey him, it isn't going to make a big difference in the world. You're probably right. It won't make a big difference in the world. But it will make a big difference between you and your relationship with the Lord. So declare Him in your life. Declare Him in your actions. Live for Him daily. It might make a big difference in someone's life. But if it doesn't make a difference in anyone's life, because Noah, I would say that he success, saved the human race. I would say that that qualifies you as successful. Nobody listened to him. You think about some of the prophets in the Old Testament. Nobody listened to them either. When you think about Jesus, his following got very, very small before he was executed. So success isn't in numbers. In Scripture, success is not in numbers. Success is in faithfulness. Noah was faithful. So we're not saying get a bunch of converts, fill up a building or, or whatever that translates into what we're saying. What I believe Scripture is saying is be faithful. Be a preacher of righteousness in your life in your actions, and in what you say. Declare the Lord. That's what we should learn and take away from, from the flood. Because God takes sin seriously. So Noah, he looked, everybody he looked at, they were condemned. They were going to die. It's the same for us. Everybody we look at, they're condemned. They're going to die. Let's be a preacher of righteousness. Offer hope. It's the only lifeline they have. So let's make sure we're faithful to do it. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather together, and I thank you for your word that gives us clarity, it gives us truth, it gives us a way to understand the world around us. We could be convinced, we could be uh, confused, 
We could be any number of things and accept what's going on in this world, but if we are biblical, we will see the sin. We will see the failure. We will see the impending judgment. And we will declare your righteousness. We will declare your faithfulness in the gospel. And we will declare Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to live a life that proclaims you every day. Lord, I know that not every day do we get to have a conversation about you with someone else. But I do believe that every day someone is observing us. Somebody's watching. Somebody notices something. I pray that that something that is noticed is always our life submitted to you. Father, lead us in that way. Give us, give us the wisdom and guidance to always be faithful and declaring you, even in those moments where we don't think anyone is watching. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.